If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is going on, Z-Pack? It's your boy, ZDogMD. This is a super experimental and really cool episode. So... I was in San Francisco for the Game Developers Conference working with Level X, and my friends at Beta Brand, Chris Lindland, who's the founder there, uh, they make apparel. We've done a show with them. Uh, by the way, they have a discount code for you guys, Z-D-O-G-G-M-D. Uh, at checkout, you get 20% off their uh, dress pant, yoga pants, or whatever else you want to get from them. Cool, 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 innovative, and quirky company in San Francisco. They, are, they, they created this thing called the Beta Brand Theater, where they're hosting kind of prominent podcasters. And despite that, they invited me. So <laughs> with a um, invite-only audience with free tickets, uh, we had a bunch of Z-Packers show up. Uh, and we did this incident report live. You can find the video on my website, zdogmd.com. I think it's incident report 236. The video quality isn't great and the audio on the video isn't great, but this audio is pretty good. So uh, I did a little minimal editing on this audio to just cut out some of the garbage, uh, but it still goes quite long. We talk about a bunch of things with the live audience, take Q and A, um, and it's a lot of fun because we have physical therapists and nurse practitioners and nurses and medical students and a psych clinical psychologist all on the show asking questions, which is really the dynamic was awesome. We had a great time afterwards. We had a lot of fun taking pictures and connecting and hugging and doing all the things that people who are in a movement together do. So I hope you enjoy this. Uh, I put all the topics in the show notes, but the big ones are, um, we talked about in rough order, video games and medicine, my experience at the Game Developer Conference. We talked about sleep deprivation and the culture of medical training and whether that's unsafe. We talked about anti-fragility in human beings. We talked about simulations for teaching. We talked again about a culture of blame in healthcare when it comes to errors and the upside of the quality improvement science movement. Um, we talked a lot about how I found my own path and calling after a lot of searching and the importance of overcoming self-deception and why self-deception may be an evolved trait. We talked about personality and had a lot of fun with our psychologist, Dr. Leslie Carr, talking about whether personality tests are total bullshit or whether they're just fun or whether they're useful. Uh, we talked about Theranos, meditation, bridging the divide between administrators and frontline staff, and why a hospital shouldn't be a hotel. And we ended up talking about the difference between empathy and compassion and why that distinction matters. So without further ado, please do me a favor, subscribe to the show on iTunes, leave a review, it helps us a lot. The show notes and everything in the video are at zdogmd.com slash incident hyphen report hyphen 236, I think. 
And here's the show live from the Beta Brand Theater in San Francisco. Please welcome Z Dog MD. <laughs> Oh, hello. Hello. Let's talk, guys. Welcome to the show. This is what's actually recording. Um, Chris Lindland, who is the CEO and founder of Beta Brand, was just talking, and he's a friend of mine. We've done a show together. And by the way, peeps, just so you know, dress pant yoga pants. You can go to work like with these things that look like actual work pants, but really you're like kind of sexy AF, you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, I think the code is ZDogMD, two Gs, because one is necessary but not sufficient to be a gangster. Uh, you get 20% off. So that's the thing. So we're going to live cast. Now, guys, if I don't look at you the whole time, uh, video people, it's, cause, it's not because I don't love you. It's because this mic is in my grill and my peeps are here. All right? We got 400 people watching live and a bunch of people here. So today's episode, we're going to do something different. They were like, okay, get a guest, do this. I'm like, guests are boring. Because they're like, well, you know, here's the thing I do in medicine. And they're not boring. But in a live situation, you're the guest. You guys trekked all the way. So, okay, who thinks they came from the farthest place away? We're, Nevada, City. Nevada City. Is that in California? It's in California. Okay, well, then it's not that far. It's close to the border. It's close to the border. Okay, that's great. And how about y'all in the back? Finland. Finland? Wait, okay, wait a minute. All right. Homeboys from Finland right now. Now that to me, okay. Untergliden Globen Globen. That's not Finnish. <laughs> That's Def Leppardish. That's Def Leppardish for hello, how are you? Welcome to the show. All right, so why don't we just kick it off? I want to start, I'm going to move this down because it's making me, um, I'm getting the sciatica, you know? So how many people are healthcare professionals here? All right, for people who can't see or listening, like the majority, and then some aren't, and they're like, why am I here? because we're gonna make it worth your while. So today I was in San Francisco, uh, partially for this and partially because I was at the Game Developers Conference. So this is where all the nerds, now it's not like E3, the big consumer conference where everybody goes to play video games, like, oh my God, the best video games. These are the nerds who make the video games. So if you guys think in healthcare, we suffer from burnout and moral injury, you should talk to game developers. So they are treated as commodities, they're creatives, they're passionate about what they do. Most of them are somewhere on the spectrum, which makes them awesome. And to see what they do on the back end with a company Level X that we were working with that makes medical video games was tremendous because the whole time you're looking at the Unreal Engine that powers 3D games on phones or the, uh, you know, Fortnite, and their kids are probably playing that crap, uh, and me too. Uh, <laughs> Epic Games makes that, that uh, um, game, and it's powered by the Unreal Engine. So we got these super secret backstage tours and demos of how they make these games. And now you're imagining the way they make a video game as some nerd in a basement going, you know, in a language that nobody speaks. That's not how it's done anymore. There are these complex software interfaces, Unity makes one, Unreal makes one, where it's almost like using Photoshop or, or iMovie, and artists who have no ability to actually program can move icons around like in the Matrix or something and build a beautiful video game. And when I saw this, I was like, could you imagine what would happen if a nurse or a respiratory therapist or a dietitian 
uh, actually was given the opportunity to make a video game to train their own people or to train patients. And you could do it with stunning photorealistic graphics. So that's the other thing we saw, these engines that render graphics. And this is the thing, how many of you guys have worked in a sim lab or a simulation lab? Yeah, a bunch of people, just a few people actually raising their hands. So it's a newer way of teaching people. And these simulation labs are whack. So like there's a dummy that like talks to you, you get your hand out of my vagina. You're like, it wasn't in your vagina. I don't understand. So it's this kind of like very rough simulation of what a real patient is. Now that's great because how do you learn normally on an actual human for the first time? See one, do one, teach one. Now for anyone here who isn't in the healthcare field, that's terrifying because the first time someone is learning on you. So wouldn't you want them to have state-of-the-art equipment to actually learn on? Well, yeah, and it turns out the video game industry has been doing this for decades, and now it's so photorealistic. So they showed me this difference. There's an ophthalmology simulator, and it shows an eye. And this is for ophthalmologists to actually look at eye anatomy and this kind of thing. And it looked kind of like, you know, computer graphics from the 90s. Then you peel back this whack layer. It looks like Minecraft, if you've ever played that, like big blocks. And then he shows me just a random eye that's rendered in any of the common video games now. And it's this beautiful human eye with depth and light reflecting on it. And he's like, don't you think healthcare professionals deserve better from their simulations? And I was like, hell yeah. So that's what Level X and other companies like that are doing. And that's why the Game Developers Conference was so interesting to me as a healthcare person who also happens to like games but isn't obsessed with them. So it was really cool. And then what I noticed is the game developers would tell me, yeah, we have this horrible burnout because they treat us like commodities. It's a brutal industry. It's very competitive. But we're like these creative people who love giving people this rush of dopamine when you play a game. And it, it got me thinking, what are the analogies and the, and the similarities to what we do every day? How many nurses are here today? Bunch of nurses. Here, let me, let me spin around. So show me the nurses again. Yeah. And then show me any doctors here today. Yeah, they're like, uh, I'm not coming to the mission. That's sketchy. Uh, what, what other specialties we got? Oh, yeah. Pre-meds? Fantastic. Nice. Medical students, anyone? Nice. Solid. Which school? Toro. Legit. So y'all are dose. That's awesome. Mental health is here. Anybody? We have one. Dr. Carr is here with Chris. She's his better half. We call her DNR Carr. That's an inside joke. Um, so if, oh, we got PT. Where? Okay. Show me that beta man gear and show me that PT. Oh, heck yeah. So physical therapy is one of the few subspecialties we haven't done a video for yet. And I'll tell you, we've been planning this forever. I cannot figure out how to actualize it. But it is Amy Winehouse's rehab, right? But not about drug rehab, about physical therapy sniff. So, right? Doc tried to make me go to rehab. I said, no, no, no. Yes, I felt bad, but I got 12 cats at home, home, home. So at some point, we'll make it happen. Maybe, maybe. So we should talk. We should talk. Because you're wearing the right jacket for this, this enterprise. All right, so that being said, I can't believe 375 people are still watching us stream live. This is all like a bunch of inside jokes. Um, 
So today what I was thinking we do, we talked about Game Developer Conference. There's so much to talk about, but I wanted to take your questions. We have a mic, so you can become infamous. If you grab the mic and say your name if you want to and what you do, and then your question, I might just fake an answer. And then we can see what we come up with. I bet it'll lead us down some interesting routes because you guys are super pack. I mean, you guys are super fans to come here. I really appreciate it. So hit me up. Where's that mic? Who want, who's got a question? Here we go. Uh-oh, Dr. Carr's got the mic. So here's a question I have. As someone who is not, I'm a psychologist, but I'm, I don't practice medicine. I'm not a medical doctor or a nurse. So you're like Dr. Oz. Basically. Yeah. Oh, that was a Dr. Oz slight. No, you're twice the doctor of Dr. Oz, even though you're not a medical doctor. Hey, I have a full range of supplements in my van outside <laughs> in case anyone wants to come and buy some things from me. No, but so one of the things that really disturbs me about things that I've heard about the medical profession is, um, and I just have, I've had friends who've gone through med school and it's so disturbing, the sort of amount of sleeplessness that, that people will go through. It strikes me as a pretty um, abusive indoctrination mm. into the profession. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and whether you feel like this is something that will ever change. I mean, I think to just elaborate one step further, it strikes me as a psychologist that one of the things that's so disturbing about this is that if anyone knows about the full impact of lack of sleep on the human body and the human mind, it's, it should be medical professionals, right? So I think we all can agree that it's not ideal to have people who are um, suffering with a significant lack of sleep, operating on people, working on human beings. What are, what are we going to do about that? Oh, you know, while you were talking, I was watching homeboys over here. And they were shaking their head because they are medical students and they are about to go through exactly this indoctrination that you spoke of. Now, it's interesting. I, <laughs> a thousand percent sleep disables us, a lack of sleep. I had a co-resident at Stanford who crashed his car into a tree after being on call for 36 hours yeah. and drove back and uh, fell asleep and, and, and broke his leg and was out for three weeks. And all the program could talk about is who the hell is gonna cover this asshole. That's all they could care about. How dare he fall asleep, like man up. And that's the culture. It's a military culture of suck it up, right? And then you wonder why when we get into actual profession, and this is again a little bit of a tangent, but when we get into our actual profession, we are afraid to ask for help, we're afraid to uh, uh, basically say, you know what, I'm suffering, I can't do this, and, and the feeling internally is, I'm the only one who can't do this, right? So then you're alone, then you're isolated, then you're stigmatizing yourself, and then you get that thought pattern of, I'm worthless, I'm not good enough. And the next thing you know, we have a double or something rate of uh, suicide in the medical profession. So I think it begins with this culture that, that you mentioned. Now, it's interesting because... Um, I trained in the era right before the work hour limits happened and we started having what they call caps. So you could admit as many patients as came in. There was no cap when I trained. You had to stay up until you were done. So it was often 36 hours. Sometimes I think my record was 45 hours in the hospital, awake the whole time, but you're not really awake. You're in a fog. I remember hallucinating, like having actual stuff happen and going, this is the cheapest acid trip I've ever had, bro but I'm responsible for lives, right? So um, there was none of that. So part of me has this attitude that I think many people in the generational divide get, which is we suffered through it, we survived, 
why can't you? And these two over here will hear that from people. Well, come on, man, it wasn't that bad, we did it. Yeah, because we're now 20 years out from it and we have a career that has better work-life balance, maybe still not good, but better. And so we forget it. And that just, that, this is the other thing. Humans, to some degree, are anti-fragile. So this is a term invented by Nassim Taleb. He's one of these guys who, economists, I think, who predicted the collapse in 2008. And he said, systems that are anti-fragile get stronger when you stress them. Um, children are a great example. You give them some degree of stress, they actually grow from the stress, they grow from the challenge. And humans are that way, unless you exceed the tolerances for that given human. And that in children would be abuse, starvation, chronic economic deprivation, you know, chronic racism, those kind of experiences, then create adverse childhood experiences that are the equivalent of a PTSD kind of thing, and then you end up with adult diabetes, adult mental illness, adult obesity, all the problems that we now say are choices uh, are actually much more complex than that. Now, what happens with humans who survive and they're anti-fragile and they get stronger from it? Well, then they turn to the next generation and they say, hmm, we did it and it's the only way to train. And that's what you're gonna hear. And actually there's a part of me, a subconscious part of me and maybe a conscious part of me that's like, suck it up, I did it, what could be so bad? And then you actually think about it and you look at the data and you go, no, it's the worst possible way. Now, yes, you can make arguments that since they've changed work hour rules now, you can't work more than what, is it 16 hours, 24 hours, something like that, 24 maybe. So you know, you're doing a lot of handoffs, so you're never really owning that patient throughout the course of their illness. Now, there was an advantage to that, but how much are you really owning at hour 40? You know, I was owning the terrifying fear that I was gonna fall asleep while talking to them uh, or worse, make a mistake. And, and I think the Libby Zion case in New York was a great example of where this went really wrong and, a, and, a, and it sort of triggered this movement to make it more humane. So my feeling is we just need, <laughs> and this is administrator speak, I just realized I was about to say something that is gonna trigger 90% of you to wanna murder me. We need to work smarter, not harder. Well, in this case, it's more than just an administrator saying some nonsense. This is where it's actually true. There are better ways to train physicians, nurses, RTs, uh, PTs, than making them stay up ridiculous amounts of hours. And, and so we have to get smarter about how we train, which means also better simulation. It means better mentorship. The sage on the stage model, like what we're doing now where I stand up and I'm like, all right, everybody, let's talk about gout for the next hour. I happen to be a researcher in gout that really doesn't touch patients and smush anymore, but I'm gonna stand here at UCSF or Stanford or Toro and tell you about it for an hour and here are my slides. Dude, dude, by about year two of school, of medical school at UC, I just stopped going to class. And a, a, a muggle or non-medical person might say, oh crap, I'm not going to that doctor, he's insane. But people in the know would be like, I'm going to that doctor because he actually learned the way humans learn, which is by being crazy passionate about something and diving into it on your own experiential level. So this ties back to game developer conference. If we're talking about sleep deprivation, how can you simulate 36 hours of experience in an hour or less? If you can actually design realistic software that isn't too realistic, so because you're not gonna, you're not gonna design software that makes you feel like you're 36 hours awake, you're gonna design software that allows you to quickly recognize patterns and, and diseases and responses and respond in a way that actually triggers a flow state in you. 
So learning occurs when you get into this flow state where you're like, oh, this is it. Like things are just happening. And when you're particularly adrenalized, you learn better too. But when you're like, oh, the thing about gout is, you're not gonna learn anything. So I think we can actually learn smarter, not harder, and then prevent a lot of bad outcomes, not just for the patients, which are, that's clear, but for clinicians who are dying. And not just immediately of sleep deprivation, but down the road of denial, you know, depression, suicidality. In a way, this is like their adverse childhood experience is residency or medical school. I know it was for me. I don't remember residency at Stanford. I mean, it's blocked out. There are a few things I remember, but if I actually probably went into hypnotherapy or something and went through that again, I would be damaged. I would just see all the stuff coming out. So in a way, are we really anti-fragile or do we just have evolved coping mechanisms to deal with trauma? I think thinking it out through feels like that. So, boy, that was a long answer to a pretty succinct question <laughs> on sleep. Thank you, uh, Dr. Carr, for that. Um, boy, any, any related question or anything else on that topic? You know, th this, oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, do it, do it. Who we got, no one? Oh, there we go. Oh, let, me, let me get the camera on you, girl. There we go. I'm Nicole, I'm a nurse practitioner. Nice, thank um, you for your service. Can you talk on the same sort of um, subject about how to promote a culture of safety in okay. the healthcare organization? in terms Ooh. of not blaming the individual. Ooh, okay. Just for people who didn't catch that, we have a nurse practitioner. What's your specialty? Diabetes and met metabolic health. Diabetes and metabolic health. Okay, so by the way, one of the most required specialties in the history of specialties currently because most of our diseases are chronic diseases and most of them are diseases of affluence and diet and poverty. Affluence and poverty. Affluence in that we have access to everything we need to eat and too much of it and poverty in that it's not good stuff that we have access to. It's low quality, refined carbohydrates, bad fats, all that other stuff. By the way, I think the greatest name for a rapper ever, Tom Heineber and I were talking about this, would be trans fat. <laughs> like P-H-A-T, wouldn't that be dope? Like he's all about that keto though, you know what I'm saying? Uh, forget about, forget I even said that, that was dumb. So um, the, <laughs> trans fat, he's moderately to severely obese, mostly moderately. The answer to this question is complex. So the question was, how do we create a culture of safety and start to eliminate blame? But first of all, why do we need to do this? Isn't blame a positive factor in safety? Like if you tell, you know, Chris is making pants. I'm gonna look at Chris right now with the camera here because, you know, he's handsome. That's right, and he makes pants. So Chris makes pants. So if you tell Chris, Chris, we will penalize you, we will shame you, we will sue you if you make pants slightly too short and they have to be returned. Is he gonna actually improve his pant making? And the data seems to suggest the answer is no. Because when humans make mistakes, they don't make mistakes typically for lack of you know, the desire to make mistakes. I mean, in other words, they don't go out going, I'm just gonna be lack lackadaisical and do my thing, mostly. There, are, there is reckless behavior, there is malicious behavior, and you can tease that out. It's not hard, it's a simple history. But for most people, we are humans, we make errors. Penalizing errors in a punitive way actually does only one thing. It prevents the reporting of errors. It does not 
prevent errors because humans will actually be under more stress and more fear and more uh, stress and more fear. And it's a cycle. So this question is actually one of the fundamental questions to creating a better outcome for patients and caregivers together, which is how do you remove blame and do this scientifically? Well, it turns out we don't have to reinvent the wheel. The quality movement has been studying this for a long time and they've come up with something called just culture. And it sounds like some kind of you know weird social justice movement or something, but it's really just a scientific algorithmic approach. Now remember, when you say algorithmic, when you say quality movement, when you say these things, the immediate conjuring in the mind is the uh, measurement industrial complex has come to torture us. Now, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about now in current medicine, what we call health 2.0. We are judged on a series of metrics, quality measures that do not measure quality. They are just things that people, bureaucrats, maybe scientists who are a little sloppy, have determined we should do. And the problem is, we're human, so we can game those measures without improving quality. And all it does is create more work for us that takes us away from what matters, which is the patient. So when I say, oh, the quality people have come up with just culture, you should be nervous. You should be like, is this another thing that is gonna suck for us? But I'm gonna explain why, and I've done a few conferences now where I've gone to these quality folks like Institute for Healthcare Improvement and others. And it's funny, when I do my talk about like, let's build health 3.0 and burn down everything, 90% um, of the audience is like standing and clapping. These are quality people who measure us. And the 10% are the problem. They're the ones sitting there going, he doesn't understand that we need to measure all this stuff. And so this is the thing, that's gotta be flushed out. But the things that work, we as caregivers need to embrace because until we do, we are actually fighting a losing battle to get the blame out. What will happen is what happened in Nashville where a nurse was arrested for a medical error. I've actually spoken to her colleagues. Everybody agrees it was a bad error, but everybody agrees that there were a series of events that happened that day that led to what was universally regarded as an amazing nurse. ICU level trained, people said she treated you like you were the family, was motivated and good, a series of Swiss cheese holes lined up to cause this event where she administered vecuronium to a patient instead of Versed. Now, vecuronium is a paralytic agent. This patient died paralyzed, awake, unable to breathe in a scanner without monitoring. And if, okay, there is probably no other description I, that I could give you that would make you angrier than what I just said if you thought that that mistake was malicious or reckless or intentional. And it turns out when they did the just culture algorithm, they found that it was not intentional. And in fact, it wasn't even truly reckless. What it was was the culture had shifted so that people would override the medication dispensing system regularly because it often miscommunicated with the electronic medical record. So an order in Epic wouldn't go through to the Pixis that would dispense the med. She was in a strange part of the hospital that she never goes to because she was the help all nurse that day. The patient who she knew very well there wasn't a protocol there to monitor her while she was in the scanners. She wasn't monitored. And on top of that, she was precepting an intern. So all the Swiss cheese aligned where she quickly reconstituted this. She typed in VE in the Pixis and it came up vecuronium, but she didn't see it. it came up and she says, Versed, 
recon. Now, she violated a few things of normal practice, like the five rights of medication administration and so on and so forth. But you can imagine, there's something in just culture called a substitution test. Could another person have made the same mistake with the same training in the same situation? And if the answer is yes, you need to take blame out of this equation. So what happened? They actually said, okay, yeah, this was a mistake. A month later, they fired her. That is not a just culture. The just culture is you console her, you train her, and you change the system to make that error unlikely in the future. Was that done? It's hard to know, but the Center for Medicaid and Medicare, uh, CMS, uh, came down and said, we're gonna yank your funding if you don't show us you fix this. And that was where it came into the public a year later. So you tell me there isn't a systems issue here and an individual issue and a cultural issue. So now, a year later, the, the district attorney files charges against her for reckless homicide. That is insane. Almost every healthcare provider agrees. This is a chilling thing. So again, no one's gonna report, everyone's gonna be scared, and it's not reckless homicide. This, this, so this is what just culture is about. It's about rising above that in a dispassionate way. Are there gray areas in the algorithm? Absolutely. Should we hold accountability? Yes, no one's saying you let everybody off. You go, no, 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 okay, you're accountable to learn what happened here. The system's accountable. The leadership is accountable to say, you know what? You guys have not been on the ball with creating a culture of safety. You talk about it, but you're not walking it, All right? So where are our leaders in this? And I went on a rant on this and it went viral on Facebook and I don't regret a word I said, even though people from Vandy have messaged me and said, you know, you were a little hard and they have actually worked really hard on this. But yeah, you know, listen guys, like, if you're not out there on the front line supporting this nurse when she's charged with a crime, ye, ye, who are you, right? So I think that we can do a lot better. That's why that was an excellent question because we should all be asking that, you know, especially nurse practitioners, doctors. So doctors are afraid of being sued all the time. And but, okay, now let's throw into the mix this. There's an algorithm in just culture where reckless behavior is punished. So if you just say, you know what, I know what the safety protocols are. I am choosing for my own convenience to disregard them. That's a punitive act. In other words, you do something for that person. They are disciplined, whether it's being fired, whether it's being retrained, whether it's being demoted, whatever it is. Okay, that's fine. If it's malicious, obviously they go to jail, whatever it is. So you're not letting people off the hook. And I think a lot of people, I think especially particularly more conservative people who are big on social, you know, personal responsibility will say, well, you're letting people off the hook. That's not the case. It's actually doing delivering justice in a dispassionate way. If only our legal system did the same thing, could you imagine, right? There'd be a lot less people in prison, a lot more people rehabilitated. Of course, that's a pipe dream until we get our act together as a society. Great question. Chris Lindland. I've got a great question here. And they're <laughs> members of the z -Pack. That's called priming. So, exactly. so now we all think it it's going to be a great question. <laughs> <laughs> members of the z -Pack are all knowledgeable about their field of interest and study. Um, when I first met you about seven years ago, uh, you had a stutter, you were an introvert, uh, you could barely string three <laughs> sentences together. And I think for people here who are very interested in what you have to say, that are also people who are incredibly knowledgeable in their fields, how do you develop the uh, confidence? How do you develop the character? How do you develop the time and energy behind opinion to actually become an advocate in the way that you are? Because I've actually watched, and I, I love your show, 
And uh, I love talking to you about talking to people. And uh, I also think you think it through well. So for an audience of people who are like, how does this guy think that quick? How do you come up with the characters? How do you come up with the jokes? What are things that, that make you wake up and say, I got an idea and I'm gonna go for it? Because I think that you've got fans that are like, this is really great. He's saying things that make sense to me. I wish I could say them in a similar manner. Mm. <sighs> Chris Lindland, um, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. <laughs> that description of me as a stuttering introvert is actually not far off the truth. So, okay, thank you for that kind, by the way, that's very kind of you, uh, what you said, because it's taken me about 10 to 15 years to come to terms with who I am as a person in the universe. And I think, I tell you this not to say, okay, this is who I am, guys. I'm Z-Dog MD and I do this. I tell you this to go look inside at yourself and go, who am I in the universe? What is my role and purpose and calling? And until you stop denying what it is, you will never actualize it in a way that actually benefits others. And that's what it is. It's not a selfish thing. People are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. self-actualization is a selfish thing. It's not. It's for the benefit of everyone. Because until you are living your story, others will suffer around you, either passive-aggressively or aggressive-aggressively. So my story was, you know, here I am at Stanford as a hospitalist. I'm doing a job that, in my mind, almost any other doctor could plug-and-play replace me. Why did I feel that way? Because it was kind of a cookbook medicine. The parts of it that I loved were sitting with patients and spending time with them. The parts of it I loved were sitting with the case manager and the respiratory therapist and the PT and the team and shooting the crap about how, what we can do better for patients. The parts of it I hated were charting, were uh, seeing you know 30 patients when I knew I couldn't do it justice. And that caused that moral injury where I was like, what am I doing, man? And then to, to, to cope with that, you build the wall, you stop feeling, you stop caring. So for me, the first step was realizing that uh, I was dead inside <laughs> and, and dying each day a little bit. Step one, step one recognize the problem, right? And it's like AA, you're like, I'm an alcoholic. You first realize I am, you know, what they call burned out, whereas in reality, I'm morally injured, right? I can't function. So when I realized that was when, and I don't know that I tell this story very often, um, uh, Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, was a friend of my wife's from college, and he had just sold Zappos in 2008 for something like a billion two, and was like a second time multimillionaire, because he had sold something to Microsoft in the 90s, and he's my age, and he's, you know. And we met with him at something, and he was like, I was like, so you're a billionaire, what does that feel like? He's like, oh, I'm doing what I like, I'm building things, and you know, he's kind of an introvert. And he goes, are you happy doing what you do? Like, what do you do all day? I'm like, I see patients. Yeah, it's great. It's a fulfilling calling. Like, I get to make people better. They come in the hospital, and why are you looking at me? Don't judge me. And I immediately started realizing, why am I so defensive about what I do? And then I realized it's because in my heart, I, I realized I don't feel like I'm doing good in the world. I'm not living my story. Here's a guy who's living his story, and he's successful. Whether he's successful or not, he's happy. And here I am. The more I look at it, the less happy I am. And it doesn't help that he's kind of an inquisitor. So he's like, well, so tell me, so what is it in your day? That... And by the end, I was like, okay, screw you, screw everyone. I woke up that next morning and I told my wife, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. My whole life has been leading to this and I've been lying to myself about it. There's this thing called YouTube. I'm going to make videos educating patients and caregivers. 
about what's totally fucked up. And maybe no one will watch it, but no one's doing it. So I bet someone will watch it. And when I really think about it, this is what my calling is and I need to do it. And she, to, to her credit, you know, academic chest radiologist at Stanford is like, it's about time you figured out who you are. Now that's interesting, that happened in 2009 or so, or 2008, I forget what it was. It still took me like a year or two to get up the balls to do anything. I'm still rounding, I'm still miserable, I'm teaching, but they're paring back the house staff because the work hour rules said, okay, well now we don't have that many house staff, so you guys that are out in the community don't get house staff anymore. So guess what? Part of who I am is a teacher. Now there's no one to teach except for the patients, but there's too many of them, so you can't spend time with them, and you're looking at the chart. So now they sucked the one fucking joy out of my life that gave me meaning. It's gone. I don't get these two in my, on my team anymore. And at that point, I was like, that's it. It's on. Start making videos. And then nothing happens. You know how it all happened? In the middle of the night at 2 a.m., I woke up, and I was like, Fush. I went to the computer, and I opened a Twitter account, and I opened a YouTube account, and I was like, what am I gonna call myself? <laughs> Shit, you know, what do people used to call me like in college, Z-Dog? That's dumb, it's so stupid, but it won't matter, I can change it later. No one will care. I'll put an MD after it because, you know, wouldn't wanna go through all that medical school and just be called Z-Dog. Could've put the MD at the end or the DO or whatever it is you have, Z-Dog RT or RRT, and so, I did that that night in 2010, around the month of my birthday when I turned about 35 or something. And uh, that was it, that's all it took. And the next morning I was like starting to record stuff. I bought this crappy little handy cam. And so what it, is, what it is is, and again, this is getting at your question in a very circuitous way. It was waking up to get, get over the fear of who you actually are and realizing that that person shouldn't be ashamed. So a lot of times I talk about anti-vaxxers and I'm like, we need to shame them out of existence. That's the wrong word, actually. Shame is when, and Tom and I have talked about this on the show, shame is when you say, I'm not good enough, right? I'm a bad person. I've done something bad. Guilt is what we need to do for the anti-vaxxers. <laughs> Guilt is where you say, you should feel really guilty because your behavior is costing lives. That's different. You're a good person displaying bad behavior, uh, I think. You're a good person. I'm gonna give you that benefit of the doubt. And so when, when, when we actually see who we are, sometimes there's a lot of shame. So Chris and I were talking about taking personality tests earlier at dinner. And a lot of people are afraid to take a personality test because they'll find out who they really are. And it's interesting. And then they go, shit, that's not who I am. That's not what I am. And so when I took it recently, the Sparkatype thing we talked about on our show, it's like, well, what's your app? You can take this for free online. It's just Google Sparkatype, which is the dumbest name in the history of names. But it'll tell you through a series of questions, well, what are your aptitudes and stuff? Well, it turns out, surprise, my Sparkatype is Sage, which is someone who loves to teach, not necessarily to mentor. So I don't necessarily wanna grab one of these medical students and go, come under my wing and let me turn you into a man, no. I wanna go, let me tell you the wisdom that I've learned in an engaging way, and then you run with that. And then you're off on your own. That's what the sage is. And the subtype was the maker. So somebody who loves to create for the sake of creating. You combine them together, you make stuff to teach. Well, if I'd known that, 
you know, in 2000 when I graduated, I would have cut to the damn chase, right? So sometimes a little bit of self-discovery can go a long way, but what if you're ashamed? What if your parents are pressuring you or there's some, you know, societal pressure you went through medical school and now you can't not do the regular grind because, you know, pressure. Well, then you're not living your story, right? Someone's extinguished your spark type. That's so dumb. Never let me say that again. And so in that, in that state, then you're, you're not you. So again, back to the question that Chris answered, how did you become, how do you do this thing? How do you, you find out who you are and then you go live that story and you have to do it bravely. Now, the thing is, it doesn't mean you abandon everything that's built you so far. Maybe you've made some mistakes, maybe you've gone on a wrong path, but not, there's no wrong path because it all, look, if I hadn't done 10 years as an academic kind of thing at Stanford, how could I have any credibility to say half the shit I say on the show with passion? People will be like, shut the hell up, who are you? Well, now I can say that and go, well, I'm still nobody, but I'm nobody who had to go through this grind. So I'm with you, we're a part of the tribe together, right? I had to do that and I don't regret a minute of it. I, I, and sometimes I regret not waking up earlier, but even that, the timing was perfect. Like I'm, I'm 45 years old. I don't think I could have done this with the degree of ability to communicate that, 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 that I can until I was this age because now I've let go of some of the baggage of youth and trying to impress people all the time and all that ego. Some of it is dissolved. Some of it has become incorporated in what I do, and some of it's still there. But so, 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 so it, it is, and, and part of it is, again, is self-discovery and waking up and that kind of thing. Um, so so the, the comment was 10, 10 years ago that I would have had a different sparkotype. Now, this is interesting, actually. What, what, hang on, hang on, hang on. I think uh, you need to be seen and heard, unlike children who should just be seen and not heard. Um, <laughs> What, what was your name again? Tracy. Tracy. Yes, Tracy. I'm Hi. a neuro ICU nurse. You're a neuro ICU nurse. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. Thank you for your service. Someone's clapping back there. Are you a neuro ICU nurse? Oh, neuro step down. I love it. She does the harder work. Oh, nice. By the way, neuro her step down. Her. Neuro step down was where that Vanderbilt nurse was uh, help all that day. Um, okay, this is a great point. Could, oh, let me get this camera happening. Could my sparkotype have been different back then? Okay, here's what I think. And this is what I think some of the data might suggest. No. So there's a lot of data, and Dr. Carr can correct me. Personality traits are a good percentage inborn. So if you take twins, you separate them at birth, they're raised by different sets of wolves, <laughs> or whoever's raising them. You bring them back together later, they share a lot of the big five personality traits of, of you know, openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, extroversion, those kind of things. And, um, and it tells you a lot of this is the hand we were dealt. Now, you can modify aspects of it, but a dramatic change in who you are. How many people have multiple children here? Yeah, a few people raising their hand. The first child comes out, you're like, okay, cool. Second child comes out. Did you know they were different than the first child the instant they were born? Yeah. I did. When my second came out, I was like, this is a different kid. And in retrospect, the first one came out exactly as stubborn and as oppositional as she ended up being later. So I think to some degree we're dealt this hand and then our environment conditions it further and puts parameters on it. So this idea that we can change fundamentally who we are, I think is a difficult one. The question is, is that a bad thing? And I think the answer is no, because we've been so conditioned to criticize, not just ourselves, but others. To go, you know what, if you just were a little more diligent, 
stuff will get done and you'd be much more successful. If you were just a little more open to experience, you'd be so much more successful. Now that's the wrong way. And there's business data that shows that those kind of, crit you know, now we're all about giving feedback. Well, I'm gonna sit in for my 360 degree feedback with uh, the boss and they're gonna tell me all the things I'm bad at and I need to improve at. The data seems to suggest that just makes you worse. It's kind of like saying don't make mistakes. It's the same thing. Whereas it seems to suggest if you go, okay, listen, your strengths are the following. And I'm gonna stop the presses anytime you do something that is absolutely on point, and I'm gonna encourage you to do it even better. Oh man, then you start to guide yourself in a way that, that really promotes growth. You can minimize the negative effect of your weaknesses, but why sit there trying to, trying to grow weaknesses into something that's a strength? It's very hard. Just work mostly on the strengths. Now, why does this relate to personality type? Well, and this relates to my story too, what Chris was saying. Okay. All my damn life in medicine, I've been wondering why the hell I can't focus and study, why the hell I have to wait till the last minute on the test. We were talking about, I was the guy who sat in the back of the class throwing spitballs. I was the guy who wouldn't show up to class and would cram the lecture and like do other things to try to learn it. And I would, it would work out, but by the skin of my damn teeth. And it was so stressful for me, right? So just up all night stressing about why I can't study. And if I just realized then I've taken other personality tests, guess what? I'm kind of low in diligence. I'm higher in extroversion and openness to experience and compassion, lower in and, and, and orderliness part of neuroticism. I'm very OCD, but I'm not diligent. So I would pound on myself. I should make notes. I should organize myself. And every time in my life I've tried to do it, I have failed. It has come up short and I've been worse off for it. So how about instead of trying to be someone we're not, we just focus on our strengths. How long did it take me? A, a couple decades to figure out what am I good at? Communicating to others and getting them to synchronize their brainwaves with mine. When I'm passionate about something, they will be passionate about it too. Okay, why don't I focus on that? I'm open to experience so I can see nuance and things. Great, let's talk about the nuance. Everything isn't black and white. Oh, uh, I'm OCD neurotic. That's really good for video editing. Because you know what? Here's a secret. The difference between a great video and a shitty one is half a second of trim between scenes. It really is. That's where the details matter. By the way, Logan hates it when I tell him this when he's editing video. I'm like, this video sucks. Then I'll take it and I'll make it 1% different. And suddenly I think it's a fantastic video. And I don't think it's just because I'm a control freak, although it's 90% of it. Those little subtleties make a difference. So. Focus on your strengths and stop beating yourself up for the weaknesses because they're hard to change. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, question. Um, Hi, thanks. Uh, Erica from Physical Therapy. I'm not as familiar with these personality type tests, so we're all big fans of evidence. What's, <laughs> <laughs> what's the validity and reliability of a lot of these uh, personality tests? You know, I was waiting for someone to ask that question, and I'm going to tell you the answer right now. Leslie might know, but I don't flip and know. And this is one of those things where I deviate from what my normal practice is, which is I'm all about evidence-based stuff. Now, if you read psychologists like Jonathan Haidt, who I'm a, he's a big idol of mine. He's an intellectual hero of mine. I model a lot of my thinking on his work on happiness, his work on elephant and rider, which is a paradigm that I use. Yes, so the unconscious and the conscious and how they interact. He is... 
uh, very much a student of uh, this kind of inborn moral palette that we have that is a personality thing. Now, how, the validity of the individual tests, hard to say. But I'll say that as a concept, it's interesting. For me, I found it to be very useful later. So the question is, does it have a predictive value? So can I then moving forward make my life better by doing this? I don't know the answer. And it's very good that you ask that question because we may find out it's all bullshit. In which case I'll say, well, it worked for me guys. All right, I'm out. Don't vaccinate, it's a scam, it'll make you autistic. So that's, that's, that's a great question. Does anyone know the answer to that question, by the way? Ah, Dr. Carr, hang on. I'll, I'll weigh in here. Yes. And I, I, I may say something that you don't want to hear, Zubin, but I'm yes. going to go for it. Um, I love it. I think a lot of it is fooey, honestly. I, you know, I'll sort of offer a completely contrarian opinion. I think that, you know, nature and nurture, it's all really complex. I think we come in with a certain amount of hardwiring. Social learning is, it accounts for a lot. But you even look at something as simple as sort of introversion and extroversion, and I think it's, it's kind of a false construct, honestly. The vast majority of people are, you know, people get so, oh, I'm an ambivert, I'm an introverted extrovert, I'm an extroverted introvert. It's like, I, nothing, you know what I mean? Like, people can get a bit weird about it because it's like either part of the binary doesn't quite fit. And in my experience, training, you know, all of that stuff, you can look at something as simple as someone being somewhat introverted, which is really nothing other than a descriptor in my mind. And someone can come across as an introvert just because they've experienced a certain degree of relational trauma and they want to spend more time by themselves because it's, it's work to be around other people or it's triggering, et cetera. So I think it's, it's really complicated. It's kind of funny actually hearing you talk about the big five ocean personality traits just because as a clinical psychologist, I don't ever think about that stuff. So some of it is really, you know, it can be fun, personality tests can be fun, but if I were to answer the question of can it change over time, I would say absolutely it can. Ah. You know, that like therapy changes people's orientations and all of that stuff. Do you think it actually changes the fundamental big five in very significant ways? I think that it can, certainly. And I don't know that we really, I don't know that we've done enough research to know kind of whether it does, mm. you know. it's um, Human beings can be notoriously difficult to do research on because we can't. Horrible, horrible. We can't cookie their consciousness, so to speak, and put them in a lab if anyone's a Black Mirror fan. But we can't, you know, it's really, it's hard to do empirical tests of that kind with human beings that are living in the world and interacting with their environment all the time. Um, so it's a little bit hard to say, but I think that, um, I think people change in pretty profound ways when the circumstances are right. Yeah, you know what, I don't disagree with anything you said actually. Uh, and I think your clinical nuance and experience is why that answer is so helpful to everyone. Because it is, it's all kind of nuance. Now, you know what's interesting? I just had a flash while you were telling me this. Uh, so Tom on my team uh, got, uh, what was it, a scientist and, uh, and maker as his personality, sparkotype. Now the scientist apparently values being right, objectively right. And he gets a dopamine rush from being right. Mm. Whereas, I actually really enjoy when someone disagrees or brings a, a, a perspective that says, you know, you're not thinking about it as expansively as you could. Right. And so when you gave the answer initially, I'm like, am I wrong about this entirely? And then as I was listening to your answer, I'm like, I think I'm 70% right. And it's that 30% where the, 
where the humans live, right? right. It's that nuance, and, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, so, and, and the question then is, is it, in, is it valuable or not valuable to know where you're starting? What do you think? You know, uh, know where you're starting. I think when it comes to sort of personality, you know, tests and that kind of stuff, honestly, more than anything, it's just fun. I think a lot of us know what it's like to, whether it's Myers-Briggs or whatever. Whatever it is, yeah. (laughs) Spark type. When we were having um, a drink before... Z Dog here got up. He was telling me about this spark type, and I was like, "Where'd you find that? Teenbeat.com? Like, where did you?" <laughs> uh, it was Tiger Beat. Thank you very much. Actually, Tom Heineber pulled it out, and he's like, um, "My therapist." Listen to this. This is the funny part. His therapist had him do it. Oh, that's hilarious. yeah. And so he's like, "Well, it must be right because my therapist had to do it." And so I did it. Then I had Tony Shea do it, and he came up with Scientist Maker. I had my wife do it, and she came up with Maven. Uh, sage and and so we all were like, oh, it kind of fits a self fulfilling prophecy. But you're right, it's fun. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, and I find that it, it reflects something to us, right? Mm. You know, these different types of personality profiles. You know, whether we agree, we disagree. Sometimes it feels like we find something meaningful in it, but a lot of it is not necessarily empirically validated. Yeah, stuff. that's it's right. Im- it's important to take that stuff with a grain no. of salt. Excellent. Which relates back to the question over here. You know, what's interesting about that too is as I was taking this test. I was asking myself the question, am I answering this honestly? So, and this is very important because there's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I want to be a sage maker. Therefore, I will answer these questions which are leading questions uh, in this way. So is that possible? Sure. Now we like to think we're objective, but we're not. And in fact, honestly, this is an interesting thing that I've been reading about and trying to understand. Humans are really good at self-deception. And there's an evolutionary reason for that, which is you have a couple types of of selection going on as you evolve. There's the individual selection, like I need to survive. And then there's the group selection, which is the tribe needs to survive. So for a tribe to survive, humans developed language, cooperation. uh, Oh, let me flip this around here. Language, cooperation, persuasion, the writer part that persuades others that your elephant, your unconscious emotional or intuitive self is correct. In order to succeed as a society, there has to be fairness. So the golden rule is one of the great ancient traditions that has stuck with us, do unto others, right? And this sort of reciprocity. I did you a favor, you're gonna do me a favor. Now, when the tribe is hunting and everyone has to go out and hunt, how can you get out of that individually taxing activity so that you have these two competing evolutions. The group has to survive and the individual. Well, what's a good way to survive as an individual? Cheat. Uh, You know what? Eh, I'm not going to go out hunting because my leg hurts, so I'm going to stay home. And they go, okay, that's cool. Then they evolve a lie detector, better facial recognition, better like, you know what? You always make that face when you're lying. I know you're lying. What the Grow up. And there's this arms race where The deceptors in the group, which is a small group, get really better and better at lying and fooling others, and the others get really better at detecting the lies. Well, what's the best way to fool the group? Believe the lie yourself. So when you believe it, then it's pretty easy to fool the group. So the theory is self-deception evolved as a way to better function in a group environment and to get away with a lack of reciprocity and other things like that evolutionarily. So it's interesting, you can actually see that. So then, you know, we were talking about Elizabeth Holmes earlier uh, over drinks. So Elizabeth Holmes is the CEO of Theranos. You may, 
Not anymore, because Theranos is not an ongoing concern. But the question is, you watch her, and, and we were speculating about the psychopathology involved in how you can lie with a straight face and so on, but to some degree, I suspect there's a self, and let's just pretend we know her. We don't, we can't diagnose her. There's some self-deception. She actually believed the stuff she was saying. She believed she was this wonderkind who was gonna change lab medicine and that you know she's reading Steve Jobs' book and trying to be Steve Jobs and so on and so forth. And by believing that, she was able to convince powerful people. And it helped that she had this particular charm and wore the turtleneck and so on and so forth. But in reality, she was relationally very manipulative in a way that if you were, if you knew you were lying, it'd be really hard to pull off in a sustained way. And so we start to believe some of our own self-deception, I think. Now, I, I don't know what you think about Leslie, that, Leslie, but it felt intuitively correct. And again, which means it's probably wrong because our intuitions fail us, as Daniel Kahneman and others have taught us. Uh, we intuit things incorrectly a lot of the time. It's a shortcut, but what we need to work on is the longer cut, the slow part of our thinking, which is, now wait, is that really true? Which actually gets me to a quick point I wanna make. Part of the success of, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, where you recognize thought distortions and act to intercede on them, or meditation, where you sit in silence and watch thoughts arise as they arise and disappear and realize the transient nature of them. Part of the appeal of that is being able to take a space before you just react to your intuitive response. So we have these conditioned intuitive response. If you have a space where you go, oh shit, I wanna say this to this person. Why is that? Oh, that's anger, it feels like this. You know what, I bet there's a bit of defensiveness there too. You know what, I'm gonna take a second. And then you say something that's a little more compassionate. And that allows you all the difference in the world, right? So that can be practiced, that can be grown. I was very bad at that in my 20s. I'm a little better at it now. But in my 20s, I would just react. And high, you know, testosterone levels don't help and all this. I'm hoping I have low T and it's mellowed me out. I'm just hoping, you know? All my hair fell out, which implies high T and also stress. But yeah, so anyways, I don't know. What, what were we talking about? <laughs> testicles? Okay, anyways, on to testicles. Here's the thing about now. Uh, speaking of testicles, let, 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 everyone's, yeah, exactly, about <laughs> testicles. Um, and actually, I'm gonna take a comment from the live uh, online audience here. Donna Lordy, who's a, a licensed clinical social worker and counselor and a supporter of the show, subscriber, says meditation is powerful because it's an active and violent process. You directly confront and challenge your thoughts, emotions, and preconceptions where they are. If you meditate and feel nothing, you are doing it 100% wrong. Ooh, that's interesting. So as a, um, as a dabbling meditator who meditates an hour a day, I'll say she's right. If you are in a state in meditation where you're just in bliss and kind of dulled and, you, and an hour goes by and you don't even notice it, you're doing it probably wrong. You've succumbed to something called dullness where you're just basically part of sleep and you're in that state and the mind is quiet. If you're in meditation and shit is coming up in your mind that makes you go, oh my God, I haven't thought about that in a decade, that was traumatic wait a minute, and then other emotions and other thoughts, and you witness them, it is a violent and painful process that makes you, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times, and this is like a weird thing to say to an audience that's live, that I'll sit in my room in the morning and meditate and just tears will be streaming down my eyes, and I don't know why. 
It's just some emotion or something comes up from the unconscious because you've quieted the monkey mind above it. That's always like, okay, you got to do this today. You got to do that today. You got to do this today. When it gets quiet, what's underneath is often pretty dramatic. And so people who are like, I can't quiet my mind. Well, that's not really what it's about. It's about witnessing what's happening in the mind. So Donna, Donna Lordy is right. Other questions? We've gone down this weird esoteric route. Don't get me started on this path because we'll lose all our viewers. Yes, ma'am in the back. Hang on, hang on. Let's grab you a microphone. Susie B., former Susie. ER trauma nurse, 15 years in risk management. Thank you for your service. Um, three tangible takeaways to bridge the divide between administration and frontline staff. Thank you. Do, do me. Oh, I thought you were going to give them to me. I was like, thank God, someone can finally answer this question. Take your show. No. All right, let me, let, me, let me see if I understand this. Three tangible takeaways to bridge the divide between administrators and staff. You have been both. You're in risk management, and you, are on, you were on the front lines in the emergency department. Okay. One of my great regrets in a recent piece that I did that you may or may not have seen called Moral Injury is Not Burnout or whatever the hell I called it. I did a rant from my unconscious that uh, I did in a six minute straight rant. And I don't prep these things. Tom was like, okay, do a thing on moral injury. After I got done yelling about an insurance company I hate, get me fired up. And I did it. And I, I basically said something, F the administrators who tell us that, you know, essential oils are gonna do this and F these administrators and F that. Okay, bless you. That was a special kind of sneeze. It's the kind of sneeze I have. It's like, that sneeze. It's, it's gout. Yeah, an HR sneeze. That's, that's, that's her way of telling me, okay, don't talk about testicles. We don't have, ins we don't have HR insurance for this. Um, so in that piece, I ranted and raved about administrators. Well, what I was really doing from the unconscious was the administrators who do not get it. So non-clinical administrators who think that they can patch a problem with some quick fix that they learned in business school or at leadership camp or from some you know, LinkedIn article that some douchebag shared with them about, if you tell your clinicians to use meditation and massage, they will be more resilient. It's like, bitch, we are the most resilient people on the planet. You know, you don't think we haven't been through the shitter, like we haven't dropped our pager in the toilet on call 36 hours through carrying a 30 patients as a nurse with poor staffing ratio. Look, we can do this. If we fail, it means your shit is fucked up. It means you have, as a system, failed. So that's how I got in that headspace. Now, here's the problem. I don't really believe that administrators are the enemy. I believe that they're partners in a solution. So when you ask three tangible ways to bridge the divide, the first is to recognize the goodness in, all, in everybody and the desire to actually do the right thing. So first of all, step one, we all acknowledge we're on the same team. And this is, I got so many messages from administrators and it, they would always start the same way. And it was something the effect of this, bro, I'm with you on this. Moral injury is a real thing. I totally get it. Here's where I'm butthurt. You don't include us in the morally injured. You think we're the enemy. Every day we struggle. And they would tell these heartrending stories of the doctors feel this way, and so I try to do this. Then the insurance company tells me this. And then Epic does this. And so imagine the strain they're under. So at that point, I felt really bad because I'm like, I should have made that clear in the video. But the thing is, I can't do take two. It just, we've done this. Okay, Tom will be like, it wasn't concise enough. Do take two. Take two is a perfect take without any 
passion at all. I mean, it's, no one cares. It has to be from me. So now what I have to do is answer your questions in a video that is three minutes with the same passion, which is I have been around the country talking and, I, and it's the administrators who come up afterwards with tears in their eyes going, this is a calling for all of us. We're all living, trying to live our story and we're all hurting. And to see the physician side means that our side is, is just as acute. So how can we help? How can we do this? So that means working together with administrators to actually fix systemic issues. Instead of, both sides need to realize individuals are important, but they're not the fundamental problem here. Resiliency is not the problem. It's a cultural issue, it's an economic issue, our incentives are backwards, and it's a, 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 a tools and autonomy and resources issue. If I don't have the tools to do my job, I'm gonna burn out. If I don't have the autonomy to do what I think is important for patients, to some degree, with parameters that administrators are are helpful in making. Like, you know what, the data actually shows that that practice is less effective than this. So you can do it, but just understand what your colleagues are doing may be more effective. And that kind of, it's not shame, it's guilt. It's like, shoot, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. That's helpful. Now you needed a third thing. I kind of made up the second thing. I think, I think that the third thing is actually getting together. Did someone have a third thing? Communication. So we're agreeing, connecting. So that's what the audience is saying. If we came together, I can't tell you, man, when I was on the front lines every day, I thought administrators were just smoking the chronic and sitting in hot tubs and like had a gold, you know, as Doc Vader would say, there's a gold land speeder and they're just rolling around in this gold land speeder. And every day I've got a fist in the buttocks, not a finger, because my finger is numb. It's a fist. And they are just in the gold land speeder. Someone else's fist is in their buttocks. And, 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 then, and then I became an administrator running Turntable Health. And I have never, never been so miserable in my life as I was in the administrator role. It sucks. Talk about injury and misery and conflict. The doctors are telling you stuff, right? And the half of your brain, this clinician, and the nurses, and the social worker, and the health coaches, they're saying, but this is the thing. And the clinician in you is like, hell yeah, fuck that. We need to fix that. And then the administrator in you who's got to pay the bills, got to make sure we comply, got to make sure the patients are happier, they're going to leave, right, is going, but wait, but this thing will close. And I remember having a meeting with the team and going, listen, guys, you know I'm on your side, but this shit is going to close if we don't actually think about ourselves partially as agents of, of marketing the thing. Like what we, how we act in the world, we can't be so like clinical. We have to be what we think about this, right? We have to be out there. And they didn't want to be that way because that's not what they do. They take care of patients. And so this tension was real. So until you actually live, either live both sides, and that's what it is the clinical people who become administrators. Now, you'll get clinical people who'll be like, oh, once they become administrators, man, they just go to the dark side. And they just, they've never done it. They've not walked that path. So they don't know the pressure. Here's an answer. Fix the overlying pressures. So how we're paid would be great. If we were paid to do good for patients, wouldn't that be nice? Then the administrators would be like, do good for patients. But I don't have the tools to do that. Here are the tools to do that. Now we all get paid. Oh, hell, that's perfect. It's because we're not paid to do good for people. We're paid to do things to people, right? At a cheap rate. 
We need to be, okay, so she said we need to get back to being hospitals instead of hotels, and this is a passion of people on the front lines. Yes, everybody claps, everybody claps. Now let me be an administrator for a second. Say, 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 say that again into the mic. So we're based on all of our scores. So we're trying to make everybody happy by becoming a hotel. But then our return rate is more frequent. So now we're losing our reimbursement because they're back within the 30-day limit we have. So we need to learn how to incorporate both. We need to stop getting bitter and get better. And change is not going to happen until it costs our corporations money. So instead of clocking out and charting, instead of foregoing patient care because we have to chart, we need to do our patient care. We need to note it so we have documented evidence that, hey, I've been busy paying, taking care of this patient. So yes, you have to pay me four hours of overtime to chart. Because you want me to chart, but this patient is more important. Nurses are foregoing patient care to meet the expectation of charting. And then they're afraid of punitive punishment because, oh, we have overtime. <laughs> I do not forego patient care for charting, oh. ever. I Can I get a hell yeah it. on that? Mm, mm, mm. I worked 18 hours two days ago because I had a patient who needed me, and I was not going to sit and chart until I was, could hand him over to somebody else. What, 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 what's your specialty? I'm a PCU ICU nurse, wow. but I'm a baby ICU nurse, so I'm not very good at it yet. <laughs> so no. it takes me a little bit longer. But that, okay, first of all, that was brilliant. Brilliantly said, and I was saying I was gonna push back an administrator. Here's what an administrator would say. But that's how we're paid and we're doing what we're incentivized to do. And unless we do that, we're not gonna keep the lights on. So the question is, are these bad people, these administrators? No. no. They have to understand. You've lost your pay if you come back in 15 days. Okay. Because Medicare's not gonna reimburse them because Yeah, so what she's saying is like, you've lost your pay if you don't, do a good job for the patient because they bounce back and you don't get paid for that. So another, okay, so it all gets to this. We're only as good as our incentives. So when, okay, let me unpack this a little bit. When we talk about elephant and rider, we're talking about our unconscious motivation, we wanna do good for patients. Then the rider is like, well, here's all the things I need to do. The path they walk on is our system, our incentives, the obstacles in our path, and the road, the way it's carved. Right now, for hospitals, the incentive is turn it into a hotel, kiss the patient's asses with things that don't help them. So give them the Dilaudid and the turkey sandwich. Who cares if they become an opioid addict or you know, are eating a turkey sandwich when they shouldn't be, they should be NPO, right? Uh, and then when they bounce back, well, then it hurts us. But you know what? On balance, it doesn't hurt us as much as getting those good HCAP scores or whatever. And then the Prescani scores are patient satisfaction, which can be gamed and can be gamed by doing the wrong thing for the patient, doing what the patient wants instead of what they need. Now that's the heart of your statement. We should not have hotels, we should have hospitals. However, until we change how we're paid, it all gets down to quality measures that don't measure quality. So readmission rates, those kind of things. How do you prevent a readmission in a non-adherent patient where the social determinants of health are driving their readmission? They live in a food desert, they, they, their, their family is abusive, uh, they, they're poorly educated so they can't follow uh, the directions and they have no access to care. How can you be responsible for this, that, those social determinants? But that's what they ask us to do. Because in this country, we, medi we, we medicalize our social problems. We say, you know what? These are all the problems with homelessness in San Francisco. 
give everybody health coverage and send them to Zuckerberg General and they'll solve the problem. <laughs> That's not how it works. You solve the social problem at the root. You go upstream to where the problem is. Now, that's the, the fundamental disconnect, and it's become more acute in this era where we are measured and quantified because the money's run out. So I agree with you 100%. The answer is we don't uh, necessarily vilify the administrators unless they're unwilling to understand this truth, which is the system fundamentally needs to change. So at Turntable Health, when we ran that, we were incentivized by the insurance company we partnered with to do good for patients. It was a unique experiment. We'll give you a chunk of money. You take care of this population of patients. If they do well, you can share the savings. If they do poorly, we just won't re-up the contract or we'll pay you less. So guess what? We were paid to do good for patients. And we decided how to do that because we weren't billing, billing codes. So our chart was different. Our chart was like, Sally came in today, we talked about stuff. The health coach did things with them, taught them how to ride the bus so they're less social isolation. Well, I don't care about the 99232 billing code anymore. I just care about doing the right thing. So everything from charting to care to everything worked great. We had 4,000 patients. It was fantastic. We solved healthcare, right? Then the insurance company went out of business because that they had other models that are old school and they're competing against people that are a lot better at it like the Uniteds and the Aetnas and the Blue Crosses, at squeezing dollars out of the system, churning through patients, treating nurses and doctors as commodities. And I don't want to say what they treat physical therapists like. So that's got to change. We need to rehumanize it, repersonalize it, incentivize it differently, pay for actual care, give us the resources and the teamwork to do it. I actually do believe we need teams. Teamwork. Teamwork, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, health coaches, and you don't have to be highly trained. You just need a good amount of compassion. So I, I'm with you, actually. But again, this is the, the administrator viewpoint of it, which I think is important because I think when we miss that, we come across to administrators as naive to this truth of the situation. If we come across as educated, we have a bigger voice. I think that's important um, because we're generally pretty smart people. But can I make a distinction real quick between empathy and compassion? So this is just a quick aside. I've talked about it before, but just for people who haven't heard me say this. People will talk about empathy. You need to have empathy. You need to feel other people's pain. This is very important in healthcare. Otherwise, you are a monster. Well, so psychologist Paul Bloom has written about this, and, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Carr is going to um, say this is more dime store psychology, but I like it. I like it. Um, he has studied empathy and wrote a book called Against Empathy, which is pretty provocative. He says empathy, which is feeling someone else's pain as your own and reacting from that feeling, is actually the worst possible thing you can do. Why? Because a drug, a drug uh, somebody suffering from addiction comes into the emergency department, they're in pain, they're in withdrawal. What is the empathic response? You feel that pain, you don't want that pain, you give them Demerol. Well, Demerol they don't use anymore, but man, that was our drug of choice. Demerol and uh, Benadryl. Um, now you give them Dilala. The only thing that helps me starts with a D. Somebody is suffering and, and you're afraid to do the lumbar puncture on a child because you know it's going to cause them pain in the short run. So you make excuses for why the patient doesn't need the lumbar puncture. And then the patient dies of meningitis. That's empathy in action. Now here's the worst part about empathy. Bringing other people's pain on as your own is a horrible way to be in the world because you suffer. 
right? It's like uh, Counselor Troy on this new generation Star Trek, which was not new generation, it's now the 80s, but she would, oh, the pain, Captain, is so painful, and she would suffer this pain. They call it burnout. It's, it's, more, it's moral injury because you're suffering with the patient and unable to help. Well, that's not sustainable. So what's the answer? The answer is not, you know, uh, uh, don't feel other people's pain. It's compassion or cognitive empathy, which is the technical term. Love and understanding of what a person is going through in the face of suffering and concern for them. So in other words, saying, I recognize, I'm not a psychopath. I'm not someone who can't understand. Actually, psychopaths can understand your pain. They just don't care about it. I can understand your pain, but I care about making it better, but I'm not going to feel it or take it as my own. That means a little space. It means compassion may be a, an act of love, which can cause pain in the short run, not giving them the narcotic, having the difficult conversation about end of life. Man, you know that's going to cause suffering. The family's going to start crying. Oh, I don't want to, oh, I know what that would be like if they talked about my mom like that. That's empathy. No good. Compassion is there's suffering here. I feel it. It's going to hurt. The right thing to do is this because I care about these people. Now, the thing about compassion is it's boundless. You can practice it. It can grow. It's inexhaustible. It doesn't burn you out. And people who practice meta meditation, which is a compassion meditation, feel the sense of expansive love and in concentric circles outward. That's something that we could use in healthcare. And it doesn't burn us out. So that's a distinction I think it's worth thinking about the next time you're in a room with a patient and you're feeling that pain. Go, okay, okay, I know that person's having pain. Now, okay, I need to take a step and go, what's the right thing to do? I, I love this person. I want them to get better, right? I have concern for them. But I'm not going to hold this pain. And I don't have to. Sometimes, especially with nurses who are the nurturer types, they feel like I have to do this or else I'm not worthy, right? That, that's just not true. Man, all right. So I think with the jackhammer going outside, we might well have done a thing here, guys. We might have gone, we've done the first, here, let's look at this audience. We might have done the first ever live studio audience podcast. And I really want to thank Chris and Leslie and everyone at Beta Brand and every member of the ZPAC who showed up today on a, on a weeknight when I'm sure you guys are busy to come hang out at this beautiful place. And uh, ZDog MD code at Beta Brand if you want them yoga pants, 20% off. That's my little pinch. They didn't ask me to do it. I'm just like, I love these guys. And uh, guys, we are out. Say bye, everyone. Peace. Oh, yeah. That was fun. Did you guys have fun? All right, now let's have the real conversation. Okay, so here's the thing. Did I mention testicles?
Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, It just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.